we missed last week uh, with a great week of uh, missions emphasis with the Tabers. Thankful for them and their ministry and the ability that they, we had to have them here. So I'm going to read beginning with verse 19 of James chapter 1. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I will hopefully get past that verse before we're done today, but we'll stop there with the reading. So we, we did touch on these verses, uh, the first couple of verses uh, a couple of weeks ago, but again, it tells us here to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And these are just sort of contrary to our normal response to life. We are typically uh, slow to hear and quick to speak. Um, so I was just wondering um, from your vantage point, how, does some, how some, have some of you learned to cultivate this habit of being uh, swift to hear and then slow to speak rather than the other direction. How, how do you sort of, uh, how have you learned to become a good listener, I guess is the word I'm, what I'm trying to get to and, and ask you. How, how have you learned to become a good listener? Laura? Okay. Okay. Okay, good. Anyone else? Brenda? Okay. Okay. Well, I know you're, you know, you're hesitant to talk to me or talk to the class or whatever it is, but it is something we have to really work at. We have to really cultivate the habit of learning to listen and then speak and then listen again uh, and not just listen and then talk forever or whatever. So uh, this, is a, this is an important uh, verse, an important concept that James brings up to us here. I will just remind you that the, uh, when it talks about being slow to speak or slow to wrath, uh, it is a, the word indicates a hesitation, indicates sort of taking Take a breath. You know, even after you've listened carefully and after you've even been quick to hear, sometimes we need to be careful that we think through what we're going to say in response to what we've heard because sometimes we'll lose focus in the midst of that conversation, as Laura has, has indicated to us, and we'll sort of have maybe even lose track of what that person is really saying. We'll just focus on one little part of their conversation, and we'll respond to that and sort of miss the whole, the whole point. So we need to be, uh, again, very, very uh, Swift to hear. And then that, the other point I just want to make out, verse 2, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And just remind us all that our actions, even though they may accomplish something that seems to be positive, our actions that are, that are done in anger do not please God. They are, they, are not, they are not something that pleases God. So we need to be careful of how that goes. And again, I remind us that we often, I think we often hear the idea or, or we've been trained with the idea of don't be angry. Anger is a part of life, how we act in our anger, 
is what is important. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us to be angry and sin not. We're going to be angry uh, unless we put you in some kind of a bubble someplace and, uh, and you have everything you have absolutely ever wanted. You will be angry. You'll get angry in a bubble too, by the way. But, um, but be careful of that. Do uh, understand that anger comes. It's how we respond to life while we're in anger. So I'd like to move on and uh, pick up with verse 21. Um, Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Um, the idea of the laying aside is uh, one of those participles that we hear sometimes referred to or described. Uh, it is a verb, a regular verb that has become such a characteristic part of our lives that it actually then begins to serve as an adjective also. Uh, so it's something that describes what we're doing, describes the way we're meeting life. So this could be uh, helped out with either uh, maybe uh, while you're laying these things aside or, or uh, since you've laid these things aside, but uh, something that sort of helps the, the word along the way. So we see a twofold part in this um, verse here. We see a laying aside and we see a receiving, okay? Um, I went to my garden in my, in my mind for for illustrations in this part. Um, I'm not going to tell you that if you came at some point in time over the summer or over the course of the uh, spring, you would not find weeds in my garden, but I work hard at keeping the weeds out of my garden, uh, at least until it comes time to harvest and do all those other things, and then something becomes more important than the, than the weeds. But um, I work hard at keeping the weeds out of my garden. So this idea of laying aside something of Part of what I was thinking about was the fact that we, we do take out the weeds of our garden, and we do that to allow the plants that we want to grow to grow well, and so we do that. But the other part that I was thinking about also is when it comes fall for me, um, and I'm putting my, what I refer to as putting my garden to sleep or to rest, and I've got everything all taken care of off of the garden, then I've learned over the years that the next best thing I can do is plant a cover crop on my garden, and I typically plant rye in my garden uh, in the fall. Uh, it is surprising how many weeds grow uh, in the fall when nothing else grows. It is also surprising how early in the spring weeds grow before anything else grows. So the cover crop does a good job of keeping control of the weeds. There's also beneficial things for the soil from the cover crop. But the basic reason I use a cover crop is basically to control the weeds in my garden. Well, that sort of fits here with the idea that we have this twofold part in this particular verse of laying something aside and, and receiving something else in its place. So it's, it's not, I can till my garden all up in the fall after I've, I've finished. In fact, I just finished doing that this past week. Uh, but <clears throat> I can till everything up, but if I just leave the ground open, I'll tell you, by Thanksgiving time, there will be weeds everywhere in my garden. It is just unbelievable how well they can grow and what they, <coughs> what they do. <coughs> so we are to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Now, I'm going to have to ask you to be sort of honest with me now about this next question. But what is the dirtiest that you can imagine being? What would happen to you to make you the dirtiest that you could imagine being? Isaac? Loading up pigs in a trailer. Okay. John? Falling in a, in a vat of liquefied waste 
and coming out. If you're going from the, from the outside rather than the inside. Okay. Getting into a liquefied waste. Mowing in a dusty place. Oh, we've got the opposite swing of this. We've gone from wet dirt to dry dirt. Okay, okay. What about you moms? What's the, what's the hardest thing to get off your kids when they come in dirty? Your mom's never had a dirty kid? Anybody? Mud, John says. Huh? Walnut juice. Oh, okay, Wow. That would stain you for next to forever, right? They have a little, you have little Indians now, don't you? <laughs> okay. A skunk. Well, that would be yeah, that would be pretty pretty nasty. That would be pretty nasty. Well, when you think about filthiness, um, obviously James is not referring to to physical cleanliness here. He's he's referring to moral uh, behavior and, and being right, but. I think it helps us to picture, you know, what, what is the dirtiest thing you can imagine imagine being, you know. Um, grease, I can wipe it off. It doesn't really bother me one way or the other, you know. Um, but there are some things that would, I would consider dirty and want, want to wash my hands thoroughly after uh, being in contact with them. As Isaac has said, those nice clean pigs that, that uh, he is addicted to raising for one reason or the other. So we're to, we're to lay those things aside. We're to, we're to identify, we have to identify them, right, to be able to do that. So we want to lay those things aside. And then we are to, so it's filthiness and an overflow of wickedness. It's an abundance of wickedness. Or, and wickedness here, this word does def, definitely have a reference to uh, evil character, something that's evil in character. And then we are to receive with meekness the implanted word. Uh, the word receive is a, uh, both, has both the idea of receiving something, in other words, being given something, and taking something, okay? So we are to, and I think it's a two-fold part even in our receiving the implanted word because obviously God is the sower, as portrayed in Matthew chapter 13. God is the sower, but we also have a responsibility of our own to reach out and to take the word. We have a responsibility to take the word into our lives, to, be, to make it part of who we, who we are. you have any kind of a picture with, in your mind when it says receive with meekness? To receive with meekness? So I know that before I started this illustration, there are a couple of you here that have experience in this, much more experience than I've had. I've had, had very, really limited experience with horses. I've had a lot more experience with, with cows, as stubborn as they could be. But now I've got people that have just walked in the room that have a lot more experience than I do with horses. But the idea of receiving with meekness would be, to me, the idea of a horse that takes its bit without a lot of fight, without a lot of, a lot of difficulty. Again, I only see what I see sometimes portrayed on a program or whatever or maybe what I've read, but I know that sometimes <coughs> horses do not respond well to, to bits. Um, uh, cows, calves, heifers, they don't always respond well to a halter even without the bit, uh, so they don't like to have them put on them. But sometimes a horse will especially be trained well enough that it will receive the bit with some type of cooperation. So to receive the word with meekness, that, that was what, sort of what the idea that I came up with was the idea 
of being, being prepared for, for the receiving the word to allow it to come into our lives without any, without any great fight or struggle against it along the way. The word receive is a command. Uh, the laying aside is, as I said, an action, uh, describing something we're to do on an ongoing basis. Filthiness comes our way all the time. Most of us probably take showers or baths on a regular basis because we get dirty on a regular basis along the way. Um, the thing that gets me dirty most of the time now is my lathe. It's the dust from it just sort of wants to get everywhere. But um, So uh, we need to continually be laying aside something, but then we're also to be uh, welcome the command and receive with meekness the implanted word, the implanted word. The word implanted, of course, I guess we just maybe we think, we're thinking about putting soil, a, a seed down into the soil, the act of doing that. However, uh, you, might, you might do that. Uh, if you do it by hand, if you do it something like I do, I make a row with a hoe and put the seeds down in the row and then I cover it back up. Uh, there are things that uh, actually, um, first time I ever saw one, my neighbor had one, it had a, a corn planter that he stuck in the ground and we did this and then drop, drop the seed back and suck in the ground again and then you sort of injected it into the ground. So I don't know if that, what kind of word comes to you with the idea of the word implanted, but to me it's the idea of something going down into the soil, going down into something. Um, the basic word here, um, I guess probably is maybe difficult to give enough a translation without giving a lot of words for a translation, but it is a word that is that indicates something that is necessary, something that's essential to life, okay? So James is saying, receive the word which is essential to your spiritual life, if I can paraphrase or add to that a little bit. So it's not just something that's placed into our lives. It is something that is absolutely essential for our lives to have that, have that scripture in our, in our lives in, in, in that way. And the reason we're to do that, of course, is what? Pretty simple, which is able to save your souls. Now, he is not speaking here to unbelievers. He's already identified them on several occasions as beloved brethren. But he is saying that there is a <clears throat> the part of our, we're saved. God, whenever that original point in time when we came and repented and placed our faith in the finished work of Christ, from that moment on, we're saved. But from that moment on, we are being saved until God takes us out of this life. While they're through natural means for people up until this point in time, or maybe for some of us in the rapture. But so that act of salvation is an ongoing act. It's something that happens moment by moment, day by day, from the moment that God saved us by his grace until the time that he finally takes us away from this life. Um, so um, that, is, that is really the picture that James is trying to portray. Peter does the same thing, and Peter talks about us being able to save your souls. So it's not just that he's talking about get, you know, be born again right now. He's talking about you've been born again. You're my beloved brethren. But I want you to understand that receiving this word, this necessary word, this essential word into your heart and life is what will, God will use to continue to uh, sanctify you as the word as would be the word that we would use in, in our lives and, and do that um, on a regular basis. So it's, it's able, um, just... Briefly, the word able is the word that we've mentioned numerous times. Other people have mentioned numerous times also, which is the word we get our English word dynamo from, it is, uh, which also becomes our word dynamite. 
So it is a, a word that has power, has ability, has capacity uh, of every aspect of our salvation. Now to go along with this verse and this concept of laying aside all, you know, uh, filthiness and all abundance of wickedness and receiving with meekness the word of God, of course, is the parable of Matthew 13. We won't turn there. But um, in Matthew 13, the sower is a good sower. He's, he knows how to sow the seed. Um, again, you know, we, we see uh, pl- fields being planted around here with big, huge planters and, and being pulled by huge tractors and whatever. Uh, the day back then when they, they sowed their, their field, they sowed them by hand. And they basically distributed them by having a bag or a container full of seed. And they would reach their hand into that container. And as they walked, they would broadcast the seed. That is, by the way, the way I still broadcast my, the rye onto my garden in the, in the fall of each year. I broadcast it. So the sower is a good sower. He, he's an experienced sower. He knows, how, he knows how to sow the seed. In Matthew 13, the, the seed is the same in all aspects of it. It is the word of God. The word of God, of course, is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it accomplishes what God has purposed it to accomplish in our lives. And so uh, those parts of Matthew 13 are um, good parts. They're they're positive parts. The difficult parts of Matthew 13 is the the condition of our hearts, Uh, whether it falls on good ground or whether it falls on a hard path, whether it falls on ground where there's a lot of stones or whether the weeds are allowed to grow up and, and conquer the good word, the word out. So we need to be really careful with this understanding of this concept of laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Many years ago, I heard an illustration that I'm just going to share very quickly, but uh, it's a story about a little boy that, that comes in and, and says to his mom, you know, mom, it's really not doing me any good to memorize all this scripture. It's not doing me any good to, to go to Sunday school and to go to good news clubs and do all those things. It's just not doing me any good at all because I'm still, I'm still just a sinner like I always was and I'm still just doing all the things that I shouldn't do and I'm making you unhappy with me because I'm disobedient and so forth. And he said, so there's just no reason to keep doing this. We just give up. And so the mother said, uh, there's a, a, a peach basket you can think of a bushel basket or a half bushel basket or whatever you want to do. And she said, I want you to go out to the well and bring me a basket full of water. He goes out to the well and he lowers the basket down into the water and he tries to get it up. And of course, you can imagine the water's falling out of the sides of the basket faster than he can get it up. And he does that two or three times and he comes back into his mother and he said, Mom, that was really not a very, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. I can't get any enough water up to even put in the bucket at the top of the well. And she said, well, what happened to the basket? And he said, well, it got clean. And she said, well, that's what happens when we engage ourselves with the word of God. That even though sometimes it seems like it runs out faster than it runs in, it is still cleaning us while it is working on our lives. So just, just a thought, just a silly illustration to, to think about things. And then James goes on and says, but be doers of the word. In verse 22, maybe, maybe the most familiar verse out of the whole book of James is be, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Uh, it, is contra- it is follows right after having received the implanted word. So now we've received the implanted word and now we're to act upon the implanted word. We're to do something with the implanted word. And, um, and the, the but, but be, does anybody have anything different at that beginning of verse 22 than but be of significance? Of course, 
Okay. The, uh, the word be to me sort of, I don't know, I, I, I come away from the word be with the, the impression of just sort of passiveness, being passive in the process, just do something, just be something. But, and we know that if somebody says be good, that takes more than just passiveness, but we sort of may end up with that concept of be good, but be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. And James is very specific here in using a word which is, first of all, command, and secondly, says this, says the idea of become doers of the word. He's, he's telling them to get active, to do something with activity, become doers of the word. Not just be something, but become doers of the word. Charles? Okay, prove yourself. Okay. Uh, but, so but become doers of the word, uh, do something. So, so the word does produce action um, along the way. Um, again, when we take that implanted seed, in, in, you know, at first it may not seem to do much. I mean, I, uh, Beverly will tell you I'm a very impatient person. I put the seed in the ground and I wanted to come up yesterday. Okay. I know it's not going to come up yesterday. I know it's not going to come up tomorrow. But I wanted to, you know. So I go out there and watch and wait and hope that someday, I, I, you know, I'll see that first corn, little corn sprout just start to come through the, through the ground. But, it, but sometimes there is indication of the activity of the seed below the ground because the ground will actually start cracking above the seed as the seed comes to life and produces activity underneath the soil. So James wants us to be active in, with, in response to the Word of God. He doesn't want us just to receive it academically. He wa- doesn't want to just add to our intelligence or whatever, but he wants us to be active in the, wor- in the Word. And I remind you again that the word doers is the word that we end up with the word poem from. And you say, how does that work? It's the idea of creativity. Uh, work is cr- creative. Work produces good things. And so we've used it sort of as a specialized word in the English language, but it, it's a much broader word in the in original language. And so here in this very short section we've looked at this morning, in verse 19 it says, don't act without listening. Be slow to, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So don't act without listening. And verse 22 says, don't listen without acting. Okay? So if you're hearing the word of God, then you have a responsibility to act upon the word of God, to respond to it. So we're not going to receive this essential word, but we are to actually act on this word. And then he has a pretty, pretty strong w- warning um, uh, along the way here. Uh, would somebody look up Colossians 2.4 for me, please? I need a hand or somebody to tell me that they're going to do that. Judy, just, just a minute. I'll have you read it just a minute. But it says, if for anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Um, now I'm, I'm confused. Okay, I, I, I'm at the, um, Judy's already got it, John. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That was, I'm sorry, that I, I jumped ahead a little bit there, um, one of those senior moments. But um, only deceiving yourself. So, Judy, would you release uh, Colossians 2.4, please? Okay, so Paul is warning the Colossians against being, being deceived through persuasive words, okay? These are the only two times this particular word appears in the, in the New Testament, once obviously being used by James, the other being used by Paul. 
but it is this idea of being deceived, okay, being led astray. Now, we talked earlier about the word, a word about deceit. It's just a different word than that word, but it still has that idea of being led astray, being, being surprised, being shocked by what's really there, uh, thinking you're seeing something on the, on the outside when it's what's inside is really quite different. So, but become doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Now, James is great with, with illustrations. He loves just everyday basic illustrations. And so he, he compares here the idea of reading the word and then going away without any action, without allowing the word to change us, without allowing the word to affect us in any way, is like a man that looks in the mirror and then goes away forgetting what he really saw in the mirror. Now, the mirrors of that day were not quite as high-tech as our mirrors today. They were just probably some kind of polished metal. Uh, they may have been using some kind of still water to sort of look and get some type of a reflection. Uh, so they were, they were certainly different uh, than what we have today. But um, how many of you look in the mirror before you leave the house in the morning? How many of you look in the mirror before you leave the house in the morning? Some of you don't? Well, maybe you do it, should. No, I'm just. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but we all do, right? We all look, you know, we all find a mirror someplace to, to look at ourselves and see what, what we see. You know, if, um, if, our, hair's, if, if our hair is uh, bed hair, it looks like it hasn't been combed or washed for a while, well, we shouldn't forget that before we go out the door. Um, Hopefully you didn't go to bed the night before dirty, so hopefully your face isn't dirty from the, from the night before. But, uh, you know, we don't look in the mirror with the intent of just forgetting what we see. We look in the mirror with the intent of changing what we see, correct? That's, that's the normal, natural reason we use a mirror. Um, and so James says, you know, if you don't listen to the Word of God, if you're not doing the Word of God, just like look in the mirror and then not changing the location of your tie or not combing your hair or not washing your face uh, or whatever else might be involved in that. And the idea that we're looking in this particular case, I have the word observing uh, in that, that, that verse. Um, it, it's an intense exam. It's looking really, really closely. It's not just walking by the mirror on the way out the door quickly. It is actually having stood at the front of the door mirror and uh, for guys, probably shaving, and ladies probably putting on some makeup uh, of some of some kind or other. That, that we we it takes us some time in front of the mirror. It takes us some focus to get things right, and so we we are observing, we are paying attention, and we're looking closely. Um, obviously, Paul James, excuse me, is saying here that the that the scripture, the scripture is just is that mirror of our spiritual lives. It's a spiritual mirror. It's not a physical mirror, but it's a spiritual, spiritual mirror, m mirror. And it is ridiculous to ignore what the mirror shows us. It is equally ridiculous to ignore what the Word of God is teaching us about our lives. But it's much easier to do, forget that mirror, to forget the mirror of the Scripture, than it is to forget what the real mirror looks like along the way. And then continues to describe that, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. For he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful here, but is a doer of the work, this one we blessed in what he does. What he does.
What do you think about the perfect law of liberty? How do you break that word or that phrase down to make something meaningful in your life? The perfect law of liberty. Do you have, maybe have a different, anybody have something a little different than that? Beverly? Perfect law that gives freedom. Okay. John, John back there, Stone, do you have any insight for us out of this section? Nope. Okay, so you're most, some of you are not aware of this, but uh, John and I share this. John shares with me after class little tidbits he gets out of uh, reading in his French Bible. And uh, it's very interesting sometimes. Um, I wish more he'd share that more in, in class, but there's really interesting sometimes what he gets out of the way the French have translated, again, back to the original language, but the, way they've, the words they've used are, are very meaningful, very, very helpful. Um, John, can you go back to that idea that, John Stone again, can back, go back to that idea that we talked about after verse 18? Um, 17, excuse me. It says there in verse 17, you have to put a parenthesis, this is a commercial, okay? This is like you're watching TV, we're having a commercial now. We're going to come back to the, come back to the program in just a minute. We just had a little, little commercial. Go ahead, John. So the French word is used in their fashion world to describe color, color and, the, and the variations of color. And, uh, and what John was described further to me would be like if you took a piece of material, a plain piece of white material, and you dyed it, put, dipped it in, put it in dye. So let's use, I, we use the word yellow. That's the word John used. We put it in the word, put, put it in the dye, and the, and the cloth, entire cloth turns yellow. But then after it, I assume dries, but maybe not, maybe just... But then you would just dip part of the cloth back into the dye and take it out. And so then that part of the fabric would be darker than the other part of the fabric because it's been reintroduced to the dye twice. And that would be a variation of color, and there's not even that kind of change in who God is and how God responds to us and, and so forth. So anyway, commercial's over. Back to the, to the text, Okay. So the perfect law of liberty, or the perfect law which, which grants liberty, or which grants freedom, I think Beverly said. Uh, first of all, the word perfect is, when you break this down, the word perfect is the word for maturity, which we've looked at already a couple of times in this, in this section, in this passage. It's the word for something that's functional, something that's useful. Uh, so the law is functional, it's useful, and it is a law that leads to liberty. Now, obviously, James has something more in mind than just the Mosaic law, okay? And, but James's understanding, I think, even of that is early compared to what Paul will discuss later in the book of Galatians, which is time-wise not too separated, but maybe from a, a background is somewhat separated. And so James is, is referring to something that is... Um, 
a little different, but he's still talking about the word. He's still talking about the scripture, okay? And the Jewish world had developed into a very complex set of rules, set of laws. And even though they, they were clearly man-made, they, they, even though the Jewish people did not consider them scripture, they understood the distinction between their man-made laws and the scripture. They still tried to adhere to those man-made laws with the same dedication or devotion, with the same fear as they would have approached the word of God. So I believe that James here, in a sense, is beginning to take his readers and take them away from that focus on all those man-made dictates um, and focus them back on the Scripture. Because for the Jewish person, sometimes I think they had become very confusing as to what the distinction was for them. And I think James is taking them back to the true uh, scripture and, and taking them away from all these man-made ideas that they could have. The Jewish came up, they came up with all kinds of ways even to circumvent the true word of God, the true, the true concept of God. Um, so, um, and I don't remember all the, exactly how this went, so I'm a little bit afraid to use the illustration, but uh, some of us a few years ago uh, went down, uh, Wes mentioned it last week in his uh, sermon, but we went down to New York City and worked in th that Emmanuel house. We did uh, physical labor in that in that manual, Emmanuel house, and part of we had the opportunity while we were there. They uh, some of the staff took us and walked us through the, the neighborhood, and one of the ways they would get around the idea of being able to travel on the Sabbath is they would link your house and my house. So Isaac and I lived. Did you live beside me? Isaac and I lived beside each other. And, and so I want to be able to go to Isaac's house on the Sabbath. So what they do is they actually just put a string from one house to the other and connect them. So they do that just to, surp to, to get, away, get away from the idea that you can't travel on the Sabbath. The Jewish people in Christ's time would actually go out and drive a stake in the ground and claim that as their home. And then that day, next day they could travel from that stake whatever allowed distance they were allowed to travel uh, in order to circumvent the idea of the travel distances. So, so they had become a very complex system. So I think that James is literally taking these people away from by the perfect law of liberty. It's the law that really does function. It's the law that really is useful. And it really does lead to freedom rather than bondage, rather than tying you up and linking you down. And so I think James is taking his readers to that particular point. And I would just point out to you that God had never intended the law to be something that was negative. The law was really given to protect the God's people. It was to protect them from becoming like the people around them, the cultures around them. And so it was, it was really, um, I like to think about the law as a guide rail. It really was just intended to keep people on target, to keep people in, in the right path. It was never intended to be painful or restrictive, even though a sinful nature fights against it and resists against it. The law was always intended to be something beneficial. Uh, and there is, of course, the idea of the law versus grace, and I understand that, but that is a misunderstanding of the law, 
And I'm not saying we should live under the law. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should live by the Ten Commandments. But the law sometimes has been given a bad rap, okay? And, and it should not have that. And I think James is starting to take these people back that direction with that idea. Turn with me just almost in closing. We'll have a couple more thoughts. But turn back to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, this is, a, this is a psalm most of you recognize as the psalm on Revelation. It's a psalm where God describes how he's given his truth to man. He gives truth, his truth to man through creation or through natural revelation according to the first part of the psalm. And then notice what it says in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, the psalmist starts out with the word law, goes to the word testimony, goes to the word statutes, and the word goes to the word commandments. The word law is the broadest term. The other three words each identify a certain aspect or part of the Old Testament scripture or of the law. And if you'll notice, there's not one negative thing said about those aspects that the law is, in fact, described here as being conver perfect, converting the soul. And so just leave that in your thought process as we move ahead. But So we're, we're to look into this perfect law of liberty. We're to look down at it. And we're to, we're to go away realizing that there is something there that will change our lives, something there that is profitable, something there that is beneficial for us along the way. And so we're, not to, we're to look into it and we're to continue in it. Uh, does anybody have a different word than the word continue there in verse 25? Nothing? Okay. It just, it, it remains, it has the idea of really settling down. And, you know, just, it's sort of, you know, it's just sort of like, um, okay, so Joe was sitting here first in this, this pew this morning, and when Isaac came in, he sat down, and he was very comfortable coming in and sitting down by Jill. Now, I could not come in there and sit down by Jill and be that comfortable because she is not my wife. And I have no reason to sit down beside her and be that comfortable. But Isaac could. He could sit down and be comfortable beside his wife. Okay? That is the idea of this word to continue. We are to, we are to look into the perfect law of liberty and we're to continue in it. We're to become comfortable as we are in the Word of God. We are to be comfortable as the Word of God surrounds us, okay? So we're just to be really, really comfortable in that, in that idea. And so we're to continue in it, and then he, James wraps up, sort of goes back to the whole concept of the passage. And it's not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in all that he does. And again, that idea of blessedness is satisfaction or contentment. So... Um, Obviously, I didn't get there clear to the end. Um, maybe we can do a couple more. But So if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Uh, first of all, the idea of the word religion in this passage is probably best understood simply as devotion to God. It is a word that is used of pagan worship as well as worship of the true God. Okay, so I will 
to be honest with you, and that is a word that's used both directions. But in pagan worship, it describes someone's devotion to their god, even though it's a false god. And so this word, as James would use it, obviously, is someone's devotion to the true God, to the God that he introduced to us as the father of lights, okay? So if anyone in their devotion to God uh, thinks, he is, thinks he is really doing, the, doing what he should be doing, really following the right path, really doing the right things in his devotion to God, if someone really thinks he's doing that in the right way and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religious is useless. So the first thing that we see here in this passage that describes what is later described as true, um, well, I have pure and undefiled religion in verse 27, but true religion, true and pure religion, devotion to God, the first thing we need to have to prove that or to indicate that is a controlled tongue, is a controlled tongue. The second thing that we need to have to, to show that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father in verse 27 is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. So the first thing we need to have is a controlled tongue. The second thing we need to have is a compassionate heart. Okay, And I've already told you numerous times my alliteration doesn't always come naturally or easily, but this one was really simple. Um, compassionate heart. Okay, You have to have a compassionate heart if you really are truly devoted to God and truly following through with your devotion to God. You will have a sensitivity to other people's needs. They may not be widows or children. Or, or orphans, in, as in, described in this case, but they will be people that are in need. You'll have a sensitivity to those people and want to serve them and want to help them and be an assistance to them. So you will have a controlled tongue and you will have a compassionate heart. And then you will have what I just have described as, maybe this one's a little stretchy, but as a consecrated life and to keep him, one uns, oneself unspotted from the world. And it takes, it takes concentration, it takes focus, it takes determination and dedication to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And so those are the things that we need, to, that we need to be to have true, pure, or pure and undefiled devotion to God. We need to have a controlled tongue. We need to have a compassionate heart. And we need to have a concentrated or committed life to God. And the, keeping ourselves unstained there at the, at the end of that section, it is, again, a command. No, excuse me, it is not a command. It is a word that describes something that's become just a fact of life. It is somebody watches your life. You, they will see somebody that is, as a fact of life, doing everything they can to keep themselves unstained from, 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 uh, the, from the world. And um, the, one of the commentators I read talked about the, the balancing of social justice and personal holiness that sort of demonstrated in this, in this section. The, the social justice being the visiting of the, of the orphans and widows, the, um, the personal holiness, of course, the idea of committing, keeping ourselves, guarding ourselves, keeping ourselves from the, from the um, uh, unspotted from the world. So we need to do that. And we, and we recognize, okay, um, sometimes in our world of, in quotes, Christianity, to use a big word, there is, are those that are very focused on social justice but have basically no personal holiness in their lives, no, no regard for personal holiness. And then there are some, though I think there's been a swing back toward a more moderate position on this, but there were some 
that their emphasis was on personal holiness without any consideration of social justice, without any consideration of meeting the needs of others. And, and so we need to have those in balance. In order to be properly doing social justice, we need to also be personally holy. So become doers of the word and not hearers only and stop deceiving ourselves because it is easy to think we're doing well when we really need to be laying aside and receiving with meekness the implanted word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your love and mercy to us. And thank you for the word of God, which is alive and powerful and two-edged sword and changes our lives. In Jesus' name.